0: I want to say something before i start the message today i just want to say thanks to all of you who are worshiping one service and serving one service at least one of the things that just delights me when i walk up and down the the um, surrounding areas of the worship center on sunday morning saturday night is just to see how many of you are volunteering uh just a huge number and i'm so grateful because i know you know you could you could do the church thing you could just come for one service and sort of sit through it and and enjoy it, and then go home and go back to your life. But for those of you, and so many of you are doing this, hundreds of you are, are into worshiping one and serving one. And may God bless you. And I know there will be days when it will be a challenge to get up and go to multiple services and, and carry out your ministry. But at the end of the day, you're going to be blessed by it. You're going to bless people. And then someday you're going to stand before God, and he's going to make everything worthwhile. So please keep doing that. And thank you for all of you who are doing this. We're in a series called Shift. And it's all about God taking people to another level. And we're we're focusing on the people whose names God changed. God signified the fact that he was taking these people to a higher level by changing their names, going to the very core of their identity. Today, our sermon is entitled, Downshift. And it's exactly what it suggests. God took a man to a higher level of effectiveness by downshifting him, by going against the idea that we would have you know when you think about superheroes you know from watching television or going to the movies or reading comic books superheroes are almost always a very ordinary person who has been given this power to you know take himself out of harm's way you know bullets bounce off of him he jumps over tall buildings he has you know webs that fly out of his wrist and he connects to buildings and flies through you know we're always thinking about some ordinary person who has been given this superpower to make sure that he's never vulnerable. I think that's one of the reasons why we like the stories of superheroes because they don't seem to be vulnerable. They don't seem to have the same potential for hurt that us ordinary people have. What we're going to discover is that God does indeed take ordinary people and infuse them with supernatural power. Let's, let's make it personal. God picks people like you and me, and he puts supernatural power in us. But the irony is, and the thing that makes it so different from the world's concept of superheroes, is that God allows us to be perhaps even more vulnerable than we were before we started following him. He allows us to to take hurt and pain in ways that might be deeper than we ever took before we started following him. But the, the thing is, he takes those vulnerabilities and he transforms them into strengths. And that's what we're going to look at today in the life of a guy who started out named Saul. Now Saul, the name Saul means asked for, big. There are some of you in your company, you're asked for. If something goes wrong, they ask for you. Where's Bob? Where's James? Where's Mary? Where's Samantha? You know, th- that you're the person that they go to when everybody is in trouble, asked for and that is a good thing we all want to be that go-to person we all want to be the leading score we all want to be the the fixer the person that people come to when they're in trouble and that's how saul started out life he was asked for he was a lawyer he was a good attorney he was rising through the ranks as a young man he was so skilled as a prosecutor that whenever a tough case came up the word went out ask for saul where's saul get saul in here Saul can handle this that's how he started out what you should also know was that Saul came along in a day where the law and religion were all blurred he was a Jewish man in the first century and Jewish law was pretty well based on the Old Testament scriptures and the writings of the rabbis and their take on things so that if a person was accused of a crime when he would go to court he would be judged according to what the law was what what the what the Old Testament said and what the rabbi's take on that was. And it was a very sophisticated, sometimes minuscule, mind-boggling thing because there were hundreds of Jewish laws, and, and, and some of them, quite candidly, were very ticky-tack because man had added a lot of stuff to what God had given in, in the Old Testament. But Saul was a prosecutor in the first century, and he was a very skilled one, a very good one. What you should also know was that Saul had one hate in his life. He hated people who were followers of, Of Jesus Christ. There had been this man who had come along. He had claimed to be the Messiah. He had done miracles. He had established himself with a great number of people. And the powers that were with whom Saul would have been connected arrested this man, Jesus. They put him on a cross. They thought that they were finished with him. They considered that the story was closed. But three days later, something unique had happened and then it just blew up. And Saul was a prosecutor in the days when what we know of as the church what we're part of was absolutely exploding you know you can you can you can start a religion and get some followers when somebody walks out of the grave under his own power that gets our attention because everybody dies that's the reason why Christianity flourished like no other teaching in the history of the world was its leader did not die and then stay buried he died, and three days later, he walked out of the grave and presented himself to his followers. And according to to what this man Saul would one day write after God saved him, he showed himself to five hundred people at one time. You know, a little group of people could perpetuate a hoax. Not five hundred people at one time. No wonder the teachings of Jesus absolutely exploded on the landscape. And Saul was a prosecutor, a lead prosecutor at a time when they were you know the powers that were were desperately trying to stop people from believing in this man Jesus we we read the first time we read about him was when a young man named Stephen i always think of him as probably like one of the you know one of the high school guys or one of the one of the college age guys that we have here you know we're blessed at Messiah to have some young people who are radical followers of Jesus and that's what Stephen was he seems to be a young guy who who rose up and he, he didn't consider himself maybe a preacher but the opportunity came up and he he gave the strong presentation for jesus and it just made the people so mad they wanted to kill him and they killed him by stoning him but what you and i should understand was they didn't just start picking up rocks and throwing them at stephen they had to have official sanction they had to get some jewish power to sign off on the execution of this man stephen and the very first time we meet this guy named saul he was the Jewish official who signed off on Stephen's execution, and he stood there and watched as this rabid crowd tore into this excellent young man who believed the same things that you believe and articulated them. And he stood there and watched as the rocks hit his body and knocked the life out of him. But he never forgot. I don't think. <laughs> if you want to know who brought who brought Paul, to, we're calling him Saul now because his name's going to be changed. But if you want to know who the most influential person was to bring paul to christ i believe it was stephen if nobody else got saved that day when stephen preached i think he had a very successful evangelistic campaign because i don't think saul ever got away from hearing stephen's final prayer when he prayed just like jesus prayed lord don't blame these people for what they're doing they don't know what they're doing and he said i see heaven open and jesus standing at the right hand of god and that's how stephen went home and Saul, even though he had given permission, stood there and watched it all. It didn't change overnight, though. In fact, if anything, it just made him angrier. He had to stamp out this Jesus. He had to stamp out the followers. The word came that there were up in Syria, in the city of Damascus, a pocket of believers. And he was determined to go and weed out those believers before Jesus' teaching spread all over the world. so in his briefcase he had a whole stack of open arrest warrants and the Bible says he was up there he was going up to Damascus to arrest men or women did not matter indiscriminate I mean religion and and I I hope I can I always try to get this across to us as a church because see what following Jesus Christ can devolve into a religion just like anything else I mean you know we've seen this with denominations in our culture today denominations can become a religion it can be based on Christianity and then turn into a religion the meanest people I've ever met in my life were religious people who felt that they had God's backing for their meanness And that's exactly what happened here with Saul he was angry he was mean he was filled with vitriol and his purpose was to go over to Damascus and take those men and women, put chains on them. I mean, just ordinary guys. I mean, like, like you're here, many of you are worshiping the Lord. You know, your kids are back in Kids World or, or, or Adventure Avenue or in Baby Bay, and you've come here to, to connect with God. And he, he was going after people just like you, to arrest them, bring them before the council, and put them in jail. One day, Paul would be writing, and he would talk about how that the person he was trying to apprehend, apprehended him. The person, you know, Paul was trying to, he couldn't arrest Jesus anymore because Jesus was gone. He wanted to arrest Jesus' followers. That was the closest he could get. But on his way to Damascus, Jesus arrested Saul. He was riding on his, you know, on his on his donkey, and he had his entourage with him, and he had his briefcase and all these open arrest warrants, when suddenly there was a light that was shining. Brighter than the noonday sun, and the power of that light—it glo- was really the glory of God. It knocks Saul to the ground. He became blind. He—he he was on his back. How many of you have discovered that maybe one of the first times you talked to God was when you were knocked flat on your back? Right? I mean, life just knocks you flat on your back, and you know, before that happens, you're so big and powerful and strong, and, and you don't want to go to church and you don't want anything to do with God. But then life comes along and knocks you flat. And next thing you know, you're talking to God, and that's exactly what happened with this young attorney he was flat on his back and he started crying out who are you what do you want me to do well I don't want to take a whole long time telling the story you can read about this in Acts chapter 9 when you go home but God said uh, you know God got the message to Saul that he was to go on to Damascus there was a Christian man there in fact one of the guys that Saul would have been going to arrest and and God got the word to Saul and said you need to go see this guy and he's gonna tell you He's going to tell you what you need to do. And in the meantime, God starts talking to this guy whose name was Ananias in Damascus. And God is saying, You're going to see this guy come to you. His name is Saul, and you're going to help him. And, I, and I'll read a verse to you in a moment when God tells you what he's going to say, what Ananias should say to Saul. But Ananias said, God, I don't want anything to do with this guy. I've heard about him. He's a bad guy. He's mean. He arrests people. I don't want anything to do with him. And God is saying, He's changed. Listen to this. This is in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, doesn't that seem backward to you? Because it would seem that God was going to say to him, Now that you're synced up with me, I'm going to show you all the easy life you're going to have. But instead, God said, I want you to tell him that he's going to suffer for my namesake. And in the process of time, God changed his name from Saul to Paul. Saul means asked for big. Paul means little. And if you look at what happens in his life from this moment on, it seems as though everything turns upside down. Before he accepted Christ, he was a rich lawyer. He was liked. He was respected. He was powerful. He was asked for but for the next thirty nine years as he followed Jesus Christ and took the gospel all over the world everything seems to be reversed he was the arresting officer now he's gonna be arrested he was the jailer now he's gonna go, go to jail he was liked now he's gonna be despised in fact when Paul accepted Christ it was a tough thing for him because now his old crowd didn't want anything to do with him they thought he'd lost his mind But the Christians didn't want anything to do with him because they were scared of him, and they thought he had had some sort of trick conversion. He was going to get underground, undercover, and then later on arrest them. So here he is now after he accepted Christ. Nobody wants anything to do with him. It was a downshift. And somebody could say, well, Mark, where's the wisdom in all that? Why did God allow this man to be downshifted? well it is challenging for us and and it's challenging for us when it happens in our life because oftentimes we set out to follow jesus and the next thing you know something happens in our life that we can not interpret and we don't know how it, you know how it fits into god's plan you know you can say god i don't understand how how could a divorce fit into your plan and how could it how could my wife leaving me fit into your plan how could my husband leaving me fit in your plan god how can an illness fit into your plan and i don't believe that god makes bad things happen in our lives bad things happen to our world i mean Bad things happen to followers of Jesus and people who aren't followers of Jesus. My point is this that God will often use a downshift of vulnerability in our life to raise us to a higher level of effectiveness. You know, if Saul had stayed that prosecuting attorney, we would have never heard about him. He would have never made any difference. He would have lived and died, ate well, lived in a nice house. He would have died, and the sands of time would have covered him up. He would have gone into eternity and we'd never know about him. On the other hand, when God changed his name to Paul and changed his life, he became the listen to me, the single most effective person in the history of the world other than Jesus. He will go through all these difficulties in life and yet he will come out the most effective man in history. Even in his death, he was he was beheaded under the reign of Nero. Nero was, you know, the power that was And yet, after these two thousand years, isn't it ironic that we name our dogs Nero and our boys Paul? So he he became very effective. Why then, though? Where's the wisdom in God bringing us to a downshift? Let me give you three thoughts, and this message will be over. The first thing is, the only way that you and I can be truly effective in this world is if God works through us. You know, you're a great crowd of people, and I love pastoring you and. One of the things that amazes me is the diversity of, of giftedness and, and knowledge that all of you have. You know, I just, I love hanging with you guys. But the truth of the matter is, at the end of the day, the only way that you and I can really be effective is if God works through us. There has to be a power that's bigger than you and me. And, and the thing about God working through us is, is he can't do it if we're full of ourselves. You know, you're either full of yourself or full of God you are a container and you can't be full of yourself and full of God at the same time let me read to you the verse about about the name change the Bible says Saul also also known as Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit Now, don't let that get away from you too fast because it's gonna tell you a whole lot his name was Saul big asked for it was changed to Paul which means little but the Bible goes on to say he was filled with God sometimes God has to take an asked-for person, make them vulnerable, make them little, so that they will understand their need to be filled with God. In the Old Testament, there was another Saul, and he's a very different man. You will know him as the first king of Israel. When God first called him to be king, he was an unimportant, irrelevant person. But when he got to be king, he got full of himself. And he began, to get act, he began to act independently of God. And this is what Samuel the prophet said to him. When you were little in your own eyes, you were, you were, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And he goes on to ask, why are you starting to act independent of God? And for many of us, when we were little in our sight, God used us and blessed us. But when we get filled with ourselves, the next thing you know, God can't use us anymore. And I, I will tell you this. I travel. I'm speaking churches. Even in our church. I know many Christians who are absolutely filled with themselves they look the part of a Christian but it's all about their ideas and their take and their opinion and their feelings even about God even about God's Word it's amazing how people can be filled with themselves and be in a Christian culture many times the problems in our home is that we're filled with ourselves how how are my needs gonna be met you know I'm not I'm not getting what I want in this relationship when you're filled with yourself, you can't be filled with God. And I think God had to shift this guy. God had to downshift this guy from being big to being small so that he would understand his need to be filled with God. That happens in my life. I can get I can get filled with myself just like anybody else. It happens so quickly. All that has to happen is some kind of injustice or slide in my life. All that has to happen is some sense that maybe I'm not being you know my needs are not being met next thing I know before I realize I can get absolutely full of myself but God comes along in his gracious way and in a moment of vulnerability reminds me that I need to be filled with him and that allows me to get filled with him when I'm empty of myself so could I ask you the question today in your life who's big is it you or is it God God had to let Paul's name be changed and his life be changed so he would realize his need for God here's the second thing I want you to understand god will only work in a climate where he gets the credit it's important to god that he get the glory because if you and i get the glory then everything will be skewed people will be pointed toward us god will only work in a climate where he gets the credit and i do think that's one of the reasons why the lord allows us to get to the place of helplessness absolute helplessness god sometimes will let us hit the wall so that we will realize he's the one who has to come in and act Paul would write this after his name was changed in Second Corinthians chapter four verse seven. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. There was no insurance back in Bible days. If, if somebody broke into your house and stole your valuables, that was it. They were just gone. So people who had a lot of jewels would do something very creative. Everybody had rows of clay pots, and they used clay pots for everything. They were absolutely worthless, nondescript. They were just junk, but they, people stored their food in them and various things. But sometimes rich people would do something really smart. They would go to these rows of clay pots in their pantry, and they would take their jewels, their diamonds, their pearls, their gold, and they would drop them in, in, in a random, nondescript clay pot so that when a thief broke into the house, he wouldn't know where the jewels were. He couldn't find them. The last place he would suspicion was that those jewels would be in a worthless earthen pot the Bible talks about you and me we're clay pots when God made Adam sculpted him out of the clay out of the dust of the ground blew the breath of life into him and Adam became valuable see you and I our bodies are clay pots but God has invested valuables in us life eternity and most of all the power of God so see when God uses us we need to remember it's not the clay pot that's shining It's the power of God. Let me read that one more time. Paul said we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now here's the verse that I want to get to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 Paul had had some kind of problem in his life. Like I said, I mean God downshifted him and created all kinds of vulnerabilities in his life. We don't know what this particular one was. Paul has a metaphor for it. He calls it his thorn in the flesh. Some people think he had a marriage that didn't work out. Some people thought he had bad eyesight. Others think that he had malaria. We really don't know what it was. But Paul had something in his life that he considered an impediment to doing the work that God called him to do. And three times, three times, Paul prayed and said, God, would you take this away from me? How many of us have prayed the same thing? You know, Lord, I could be so much more effective if you would give me a maid. Lord, I could be so much more effective if you would take my maid away. You know, Lord, I I could be so much more effective if I had a lot of money. Lord, I could do all kinds of things for you if I just wasn't sick. And we pray and we ask God. And and then we, we back away and say, where's the wisdom in that? But listen to what God said. And this is in verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. Each time he, that's God, each time he said, My grace is all you need. Listen to this line. My power works best in weakness. Do you see that? God is saying... His power works best in our weakness. So Paul said, I'm glad now to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that backward? I mean, we want to be strong. We want to we come off looking like we're invulnerable. In fact, we try to convince people that we're fine, that we're doing okay. And yet Paul said I'm I don't know how he gets here I'm trying to get here myself but he's saying I'm happy when people insult me I'm happy when I go through persecutions when I go through difficulties because he understood the secret that it's in our weakness God can work my power God said my power works best in weakness I'm talking to somebody here today and your whole thing has been I can start serving God when I get over this weakness and the irony is, it's in your weakness that you can serve God best. I know I've told you this story before, but it's one of my absolute favorites. And so, forgive me for telling it to you now, and I'll probably tell it to you again someday. It's just such a good story. A 10-year-old boy lost his left arm in an automobile accident. And his parents were well-to-do, and they wanted to give him the best of life. And they wanted him to live his normal life possible without a left arm. I asked him what he wanted to do. He said he wanted to learn judo. Well, they they were concerned about that because they knew he didn't have a left arm, and they didn't know if it was possible for someone without a left arm to learn judo. They didn't think it was possible, and they went bought the best you know, bought lessons with the best teacher they could find, an old master, great judo expert. He tried to discourage them, but they said, "No, our son. It's just absolutely certain that he he wants to take judo lessons." So the old man said, "All right." He took the boy as a pupil. They began to work on one move, and every week. When this boy came to judo lessons the old master just worked on one move after about six weeks of that the kid asked him since I w- when are we going to do something else he said we're never going to do anything else this is all we're going to do this is all I'm ever going to teach you and it's all you're ever going to need well the boy learned and he kept working kept working kept working he was so passionate about learning judo that he, he just he just would not he would not be deterred after months of training and teaching the time came for a tournament the boy had absolutely no expectations at all. He, he just went to the tournament because he thought, you know, I've taken the lessons. My master wants me to go and participate. So he went. He was amazed. In the first three rounds, he, he won easily. He had that throw. He had that move. He had perfected it. And the t- opportunity came. He, he, made, he, took, he took that opportunity. He made the throw. Won. He got into the semifinals. And, and it was a tough kid and a kid that knew a lot about judo. And, and it looked like he was overmatched, but... There was this moment when his opponent lost his concentration. The kid performed his move and won the match. Finally, he was in the finals. This time, he was very much overmatched, much stronger kid. And he was in so much trouble, the referee tried to stop the match. But the old master told the referee, he said, don't stop the match. Let him go. And sure enough, there was this moment where his opponent lost his concentration, and this little kid with no left arm, performed his throw, and won the tournament. On the way home, he was sitting in the front seat with his teacher and holding his trophy, and they were going over the entire tournament, every throw, every move, every, everything that happened. Finally, the boy asked what was really on his mind. He said, since I, how did I win? How, how, how did I win this tournament? The old teacher smiled, and he said, well, son, he said, you've performed one of the most difficult moves in judo. He said, you've perfected it. And he said, you've learned it and and done it skillfully. He said, the other thing I need to tell you is the only known defense for that particular throw is for your opponent to grab your left arm. (laughs) And how many of us go through life with a vulnerability and we'd love to do something about it and we ask God to take it away? And God comes along and puts his treasure in a clay vessel and the devil would like to do something about it but the only thing he could do about it is to grab us in a place where we're vulnerable and depending upon God and he walks right into a trap my strength works best in weakness what's the wisdom what's the wisdom in a downshift well God can't work in our lives if we're full of ourselves And then we've also seen that, you know, God wants to get the credit. He he allows vulnerability in our lives so that everybody will know that what happens good in our lives happens from Him. There's a very merciful side of this, too. This is the third thing. I desperately want to experience God in my life. Do you? I want to know God is there. I can't see Him. I can't hear Him. But I want to know He's there. I want to know that He's at work in my life. And the thing about it is, you know, if everything goes well in our lives, we won't know God's there. We will think that the things that happen to us happen fortuitously. The luck of the draw, the norms. We'll think that all the good things that happen in our lives just happens. But I do think sometimes God lets us hit the wall just so that he can say, I'm right here. It's at that moment when we go through a time of pain or vulnerability and we experience the presence of God, those are the moments that we look back on and say yes I know why I'm a follower of Jesus. I was in a tough time and he was there. When I was a kid growing up a teenager there was a a Christian singer who had a group his name was Andre Crouch and he had a song and it was my favorite song when I was a teenager. The irony is, I liked the song musically and lyrically when I was a teenager, now that 35 years have passed since I heard the song. I love the song now because I've lived it. Could I give you the lyric, please? He writes, I thank God for the mountains, and I thank him for the valleys, and I thank him for the storms he's brought me through. And here's the line. For if I never had a problem... I wouldn't know that God could solve them I'd never know what faith in God could do I believe God lets us have problems just so that we will know he can solve them and so we will know that he's there this week I was driving back from Texas I had the conference there I was there last Sunday spoke through Wednesday night And I like to get home as fast as I can. Usually when I end a conference on Wednesday evening, if it's in driving distance, I'll get in my car and drive, even if I get home at 3 or 4 in the morning. And Mary Allison said to me, Mark, you know you're not as young as you used to be. That's hard to hear. (laughs) And she said, why don't you rest for a few hours and, and get up and drive home? And then my dad called, he said the same thing and I was kind of thinking about it anyway so I slept till about three or four in the morning got up and started driving home just crossing the Texas border before daylight and Mary Alice called and she said is it raining there I said no it's dry and the moment I said no it's dry it started raining just as if on cue and you know how it was thirsty here I mean it was cold and windy and rainy I drove all the way through Oklahoma and fought the rain, you know, all the mist that the trucks throw up coming back on my windshield. And, 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 you know, there were probably some dangerous points in that, but I just was going along and saying, this is great, and I'm praying and thinking. And then crossed the Kansas border, and I think I'm almost home. I got to mile marker 38 out here on 135 and I was just rounding a little curve and I don't know if the wind caught my my car or if I hit a slick spot but I felt my rear wheels turn loose at full speed on the turnpike on the wet road I caught it for just a second but there's a point when your car goes out of control you realize you're not going to control it and here I am my car s- beginning to spin on the turnpike and now I'm going full speed backward up the turnpike, and I know I'm going to hit something, and something can hit me, and I've got enough time, and in a moment like that, it's like an eternity passes, and I had, actually, I had time, because I had no idea what was going to happen. My car is now going backward. I have no control of it. I can't even see where I'm going to go, and I'm human enough at that moment to think this could be it for me. This could be the end of my life. I don't know exactly how it happened, but my car just kind of edged over into the concrete barrier. And the most perfect thing, if you're going to have an accident, happened. My car bumped the, with my back bumper, bumped the concrete wall and then just began to slide up the wall. And the friction on the right side of my car, on the passenger side of my car, brought my car to a gentle stop. And I sat there, you know, in the rain, watching oncoming traffic, thinking, you know, I mean, why was no one else on the road at that moment? Why did God let me hit on the passenger side? Of all the bad things that could have happened, and the highway patrolman who stopped to talk to me and helped me, he told me a lot of bad things that do happen. Why did this happen? And the only thing, the only overwhelming feeling that I had was like God spoke to me. And it felt as though God whispered to me, I had you all the time. I think God does let you hit the wall sometimes just to let you know he had you all the time. That he's there. For if I'd never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve it. When life downshifts you, don't be afraid of that downshift. Don't be afraid of being weak. Don't be afraid of being vulnerable. Because when you're weak, he's strong. His power works best in our weakness.